You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. In 2 Timothy 3, we read that all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped. So let's hear what God has to say to us from Proverbs chapter 31. I'm reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you to follow along in your own Bible and the passage will also be on the screen. Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and portions for her female servants. She evaluates a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on her strength and reveals that her arms are strong. She sees that her profits are good, and her lamp never goes out at night. She extends her hands to the spinning staff, and her hands hold the spindle. Her hands reach out to the poor, and she extends her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. She makes her own bed coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the city gates, where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes and sells linen garments. She delivers belts to the merchants. Strength and honour are her clothing, and she can laugh at the time to come. Her mouth speaks wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor, and let her works praise her at the city gates. Uh, Let let me tell you uh, about a man called Yasuhiro Shibata. Just after dropping out of Waseda University, uh, Shibata founded a cloud software called ReCustomer. Our re-customer, it enables companies to offer easy returns, cancellations, exchanges, and trial fittings for clothes and shoes on their e-commerce platforms. Now, to date, re-customer has attracted about 385 million yen, which is about $3.9 million in funding. That's Yasuhiro Shibata. Or take Joshua Wong and Lo Lin Hui. Wong and Lo created a startup called Hypotenuse AI which has a more targeted approach in ChatGPT. Uh, it specifically helps brands come up with marketing materials like blogs and product descriptions. Now, since launching in 2020, uh, Hypotenuse AI has attracted investors, including January Capital 
and Y contributor, Y combinator. Or take Aniket Bajpai and Nikhil Gupta. In 2020, Bajpai and Gupta co-founded something called Lime Chat. It's a chatbot service provided for retail companies. And this is what they do. By, by offering um, personalized shopping experiences through WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and Instagram in a really integrated way, Lime Chat's rate of conversion is said to be three times higher than comparable platforms. The company has more than 250 global customers, and in April last year, it raised $6.5 million in seed funding from investors like Stellaris, Venture Partners, and Titan Capital. Now, what, what brings all these three groups of people together? Shibata, Wong and Lo, Bajpai and Gupta are all under 30 years old. Makes you wonder what you're doing with your life. <laughs> In fact, all five of these people are on the Forbes 30 under 30 Asia list, one of the greatest indicators of success in our region. And let me share with you the criteria that Forbes Asia uses to measure success. Funding and revenue, social impact, scale, inventiveness, and potential. And by that measure, it's hard to argue, is it? All five of these people are successful beyond belief. Now, I'll tell you what's more surprising than that. I want to offer today that actually the Bible is remarkably pro-success. In fact, it's so pro-success that it even gives us a picture of what a truly successful person looks like. And it's right there in Proverbs 31. This chapter, it gives us a profile of the most successful person in the ancient Near East. It's almost like their own 30 under 30 profile. And contrary to what you might expect about an ancient book written into an ancient culture, it's a woman. And she's amazing. I mean, women are often told today you can have it all, even though we all know the reality often isn't that straightforward, is it? You, you can't always get the family and the career, let alone all at the same time. And yet, really frustratingly, this woman does. She does have it all. By every possible measure you could imagine, she is a picture of worldly success. Isn't that remarkable? Centuries before the first wave of, feminist, of feminism in 1848, the Bible was already valuing women as models of success. Indeed, this woman is the, the biblical paradigm of the wise and successful life. Not only for women, but for men as well. In fact, Proverbs is telling all of us here, both men and women, be like her. She holds the three keys to true success. And I want to show, share them with you today. Here's the first key. Hard work. Hard work. I want you to notice how hard this woman works. Look at verse 15. She rises while it's still night. And in verse 18, her lamp never goes out at night. She's up before daylight and she's home after sundown. The first one to punch in, the last one to punch out. This woman is not afraid of working long hours of putting in the time that it takes to truly succeed. Verse 27 says, uh, she watches over the activities of her household and she is never idle. Or the original idiom is this, she watches, uh, she does not eat the bread of idleness. She doesn't slack off for a long and lazy lunch. It's funny, she, this woman, she, she clearly doesn't aspire to the nine to five Monday to Friday. Work-life balance isn't what she writes as one of her career aspirations. 
Uh, I find it uh, quite funny, actually. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that the phrase working a nine-to-five meant having a pretty structured, low-demand job that wouldn't extend beyond your hours of work. A job that only required your attention between 9am and 5pm. But I've noticed something interesting. Uh, after the COVID pandemic, since we've all been working from home, the idea now of working a nine-to-five Monday to Friday seems unnecessarily demanding. If you ask a previous generation, hard work wasn't just an ideal. It was a reality. It's what you had to do not only to succeed, it's what you had to do to survive. Now, if you don't mind me saying, uh, and to speak on behalf of a younger generation, I think um, we're, we're part of a generation which has benefited socially and economically from the hard work of the generations that have gone before. And that rising tide of prosperity, I think, has actually weakened us to think that we can continue to enjoy a particular standard of living without having to put in the investment of long hours. We want all the benefits without ever having to pay the costs. Notice this woman, she's not playing Stardew Valley or some online game in the middle of her workday. She's never idle. But, but I want you to notice something else. Not only is this woman hardworking, she's remarkably intelligent. Verse 13, she selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. Verses 22 and 24 seem to suggest that she has found a way to remarkably succeed in the fashion industry. She makes and sells linen garments. She delivers belts to the merchants. But I want you to see it gets even better. This woman is enough of an entrepreneur to expand into other markets. Verse 14, she's like the merchant ships bringing her food from far away. And she does her market research. She takes a risk. She pivots into another industry. I love this one. Look at verse 16. She evaluates the field and buys it. And she plants a vineyard with her earnings. It's my dream job. She plants a vineyard. She starts her own winery, selling the best Merlot in the Judean hills. And here's the best part. In verse 18, she succeeds. Isn't that annoying? Isn't that frustrating? You've got friends who, who take all these risks, embark on all these ventures, but at least it doesn't work out, but not for her. It all works out. She sees that her profits are good, so much so that in verse 26, she can laugh at the time to come. She, she doesn't have to worry one bit about her future. She is so cashed up that she's protected against any economic shocks that could come her way. You know, there is a caricature misperception that the Bible is oppressive towards women, especially in the Old Testament. That somehow the Christian church wants to subjugate women and keep them in a vulnerable state of a dystopian handmaid's tale. But just look here. The paradigm of wisdom and success in the Old Testament is this successful woman. And she says, I am no man. Because the one word that is used to describe her, not once, not twice, but three times, is that, that word, strong. And you're like, Wow. What what an example for all of us, both men and women. She's telling us you can't succeed in life unless you're willing to work long, hard, and smart. In fact, Proverbs 6 goes the inverse. It warns us against being lazy. I, I love this translation. Just go for this, right? What Proverbs 6 says, go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. 
With that leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during the harvest. It's almost a bit of a backhanded insult, isn't it? It's like you're saying you're worse than an ant. Even better. Now, I'm going to read. I'm just, for those of you who feel, might, might feel mildly rebuked by the next few verses, I'm just reading this, okay? <laughs> How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? <laughs> when? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and, your, and poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. You cannot succeed in life unless you're willing to work hard. And you cannot succeed in life if you value your sleep a little too much. People who don't get out of bed early and don't work hard are setting themselves up for failure. In fact, the Bible even calls those people fools. Many of you would have heard that Australia is affectionately called the lucky country. It's good, isn't it? We've gotten through so... We're just like... the, the, the Is it... Steve Bradbury, right, that effect represents our nation just on a global scale, right? We just kind of skate through the GFC, skate through COVID, and life is good. We're the lucky country. Do you know where that phrase actually came from, though? In uh, 1964, the Australian journalist Donald Horne wrote a book called The Lucky Country. And I want you to hear what he writes, because this is the original context within that phrase first came about. Quote, Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they're often taken by surprise. Quote, Australia showed less enterprise than almost any other prosperous industrialist society. That's the context of the lucky country. It's not that we have great economic policy and get by from our genius. It's that somehow, in some way, we fluke it. The phrase is actually more condemnation than commendation. Now, not to be too hard on Australia. I do think we get certain things right. But if we're honest, I don't think hard work is one of those things. I suspect most of us would happily forfeit success if it meant getting an extra day off. The Bible, though, warns us against laziness. And this woman shows us that if we want to succeed in life, you actually need to work hard. In fact, God created us to work. He created us to work hard. The the rhythm you find in, in Genesis 1 is the rhythm of six days hard work and one day satisfying rest. Now, now I know what some of you are thinking, right? Look, I get it. In many cultures, and especially many Asian cultures, people idolize their work to the hilt. And and those cultures need to hear this message. Overworking dehumanizes us. It undermines our ultimate goal of satisfying rest in our Creator. Overworking dehumanizes us. But I also want to say that for many of us in Australia, we we need to hear the inverse truth. Underworking also dehumanizes us. And the pursuit of a life of intentionally minimal work but miraculously maximal profit is not only unrealistic, it is short-sighted and foolish. There it is. The first key to a successful life is right there. We sit in this woman. It's hard work. 
And the Bible does want us to work hard. Hard work is extolled as a virtue for us to aspire to. But working hard is a fool's errand unless it has a greater goal beyond itself. Uh, Just last year, I was reading the uh, 2022 Quality of Life Survey in Singapore. Let me tell you what they found. This is the quote. People in Singapore who prioritize material possessions and the finer things in life were the most unhappy, despite being better off financially. It's interesting, isn't it? You can work so hard with the goal of a selfish profit and yet be deeply, deeply unhappy. In fact, the findings are not just, it's not just that you can be, it's that you probably will be. I have a friend who's a pharmacist, uh, and she works at two different pharmacies. One in, um, I'm sorry if you live in this area, one in Brighton, very nice part of the world. Never go there, but apparently it's very nice. Uh, and, and, and another pharmacy in a lower SES area. And I asked her, I said, hey, what are you, without breaching confidentiality, do you notice any sort of differences in prescriptions and what you dispense between those two places, Brighton High SES and the lower SES area? And she goes, oh, that one's, that one's the easiest answer of all. Lower SES area, mainly dealing with diabetic patients. That's, that's the reality there. Like, what about Brighton? Any diabetes? No, no, diabetes does not exist in Brighton. You get middle-aged men in Lycra riding their bikes everywhere. There's just a flock of them flying by. And they come in and collect their antidepressants. And she goes, it couldn't be clearer. You see, friends, hard work solely for the sake of profit is also short-sighted and foolish. Working hard to make ourselves successful isn't True success. True success, yes, it is found in hard work, but I want to show you something else. It's actually found in being selfless. Just look again at this successful woman in Proverbs 31, and I want you to see how selfless and other person-centered she is. Verse 15, she provides food for her household. Verse 21, she's not afraid for her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. Verse 27, she watches over the activities of her household. All the way back in verses 11 and 12, she's a blessing to her husband. Did you see, friends, the focus and object of her success is not herself. It's her family. She's she's working night and day, not so that she can achieve in life, but so that she can provide for her family. I find it tragic, actually. That among so many so-called successful people in our world, family isn't exalted as a blessing. Family is despised as a burden. Many people, and tragically many women, are being told that marriage, it'll hold you back. It'll slow you down. Children, they get in the way. They're too expensive. It was 20 years ago that people were telling people you can have it all. Now there's a general acknowledgement that you can't. So so it's not uncommon for people at work to be told, look, if if you want to get anywhere in life or this career, you need to be willing to make sacrifices. Which is true, but here's my question. What is it that gets placed on the altar of sacrifice? More often than not, family, marriage, children, friendships. They're burdens, not blessings, apparently. Obstacles to true success. 
And yet, can you see, friends, that true success is found precisely in caring for other people, is found in taking responsibility for other people, especially those people entrusted to our care. Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Or something a little bit sharper, 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul writes, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, friends, there's no point in working hard if we ourselves are the goal of our own success. True success is actually found in selflessness. But I want you to see not only selflessness to our own family, but selflessness beyond it as well. Because I kind of want you to notice there's something almost unsurprising and kind of expected about this woman caring for her own household. I mean, they're her kids. You'd expect her to care for them. In many ways, if you care for your own household, you kind of stand to benefit from it as well, don't you? But look at who else she works so hard to provide for. Verse 15 is a strange one. She works hard to provide for her female servants. Wait, wait. She, the mother of the house, the entrepreneurial woman, is working hard to pay for and provide for her own servants who exist to serve her. The very people you'd be expecting to work hard for her sake, she's the one working hard for them. Verse 20, who does she care for? The poor. She cares for the needy. You see, it's so easy to look after your own. Even the mafia look after their own families, right? But this woman shows us that true success is found in caring for the outsider, the weak, the helpless, the undeserving, the people who can never pay you back. As Christians, we call that grace, an undeserved blessing. Friends, true success is found, yes, in working hard, but not for self. It's found in working hard for others. As I was uh, reflecting on this picture, this profile of this 30 under 30 successful woman, what I found really interesting was what her success isn't or what her other person's centeredness, her selflessness isn't. Notice that when she's caring for other people, it's not just another form of philanthropy. Because let's just face it, so often in our world, philanthropy is rich people giving money to poor people so they can boast about it to their rich friends. Nowhere in this chapter do we find this woman praising herself. She's not giving the proceeds of her latest fashion label to UNICEF and then more quickly posting it about it on LinkedIn. The irony about true success is this. Once you tell other people about it, it's almost no longer success. True success is being selfless to the point of being self-effacing. And this woman is praised for her hard work. She's praised for her selflessness, not by herself. Now, that would be ironic. No, she's praised by her husband and children. Look at that, verses 28 to 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Now, I know if you're sitting here reading verses 28 to 29 and you're a mother or a wife, 
you're probably thinking to yourself, these verses, good though they are, are not exactly, how should I put it, coherent with reality. Uh, I've got friends who read these verses. This does not happen. These verses should read, her children rise up and grunt. Uh, Her husband will hopefully one day praise her, but I'm really not holding out much hope for that as well. This woman is not a precise picture of the life that we'll live. She's almost excessively successful. She's an idealized profile to show us the heights of true wisdom. This woman works so hard for everyone else other than herself, and here's the best part about it. She receives the praise that she deserves. She shows us that true success isn't just found in being smart, it's found in being good. So yeah, we need to be hardworking, but please do not waste your life to be so hardworking for your own success. Because that's not true success. True success is necessarily selfless. But I want you to see that with those two keys to success, it's still not enough. You could be hardworking and selfless and yet miss the point of true success altogether. Because the last key to success is the one key to rule them all. I want you to know that if you want to be truly successful, what you need more than anything else is this. Humility. Humility. You see, friends, for all the wisdom and smarts of this woman, it's verse 30 that is the most crucial of them all. In many ways, verse 30 is like the the punchline to the profile of success. Because it makes this ironic and yet ingenious observation. True success recognizes that all our successes will one day fade. I say that again, true success recognizes that all our successes will one day fade. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Well, do you know why that's ironic? Why is it such an ironic and curious thing for this successful woman to say, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting? It's because she's charming, <laughs> she's the beautiful. And she's saying, all my charm, all my beauty, all my success, everything I've worked so hard for, none of it will last. In the end, it'll all turn to dust. Why would she say that? Doesn't that just kind of undermine everything that she's said so far? I mean, if in the end all of us die, then what's the point of working hard at all? If we're all dead, what's the point of being selfless? Look at Ecclesiastes 5, 13 to 16. This is what one person in wisdom writes. There is a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he'll go again. Naked as he came, he'll take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes so will he go. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. In our traditional Chinese cultures, uh, those people who mourn the dead will often burn paper objects in hope that they'll one day go to the afterlife to be the possessions of their loved ones. 
So you'll burn a paper phone, a paper TV, a paper house, so that a deceased family or friend will have some possessions in the afterlife. But the Bible is brutally honest, isn't it? Exactly as we come, so we will go. In Luke 12, the Lord Jesus tells a parable about a rich young fool, a man who thinks he's so smart with all the successful investments that he's made for life. And he even boasts to himself, right? He says to himself, oh, mate, you've done many, you have many goods stored up for many years, so take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, not you wise person, not you smart guy, no, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And all the things you've prepared, whose will they be? You know, so many of us spend our whole lives working so hard. And maybe we go, you look at them, I'm working hard, but I've heard what you said. It's not for myself, it's for my kids. I'm working hard for the sake of those whom I love, for the next generation and my grandkids after them. But in the end, all of us will die. And when we do, we won't be able to take anything with us. Not even the guarantee that our kids will be able to responsibly manage our wealth. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, my grandma used to tell me um, uh, old Chinese stories about things. I never knew whether they were real or not. Still not quite sure. She told me, she said, Adam, our world is full of something called an atoll, which is the son of a king who would inherit all the wealth and just squander it all away. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, if, 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 we, if we don't reckon with this reality of death, if we think we'll live forever, our success will be so short-lived. It will be for this life only. And, and this woman is an example who shows us that the sooner we can accept the transience of our worldly success, the more eternally successful we can be. Because look at what this woman finally says in verse 30. The woman who fears the Lord will be praised. She's intentionally contrasting the fear of the Lord against the fleeting successes of this world. She's saying the only thing that would truly last and the only thing that therefore is the true measure of success is whatever this is called the fear of the Lord. Now, when we say fear, we don't mean terror or horror, but the humble acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. To fear the Lord means to humbly recognize that we're not God. We're not the creator. We're not the ruler of the world. No, we're limited, dependent, and finite mortal creatures. And this woman shows us the only way to be truly successful is to cast ourselves on the mercies of the God who made us. To wholeheartedly trust and live for the God who rules everything as its rightful king. And in the New Testament, we discover just who that king is. We see that to fear the Lord means to follow Jesus. To to live with him as, as the ruler and the king of our lives. To trust that he is in control. He is ruling. He is reigning. Living for the Lord Jesus is the defining mark of true success. Humility in worshipping Him as the King of the world is what makes a truly successful life. 
So yes, I want you to hear this clearly. True success is found in working hard. It is found in caring for others. But I want you to know that unless we have the humility to acknowledge that Jesus is God and we are not, then all of our successes will die with us. You know, the ancient Greeks used to say that you can live on forever through the legacy of your successes in life. It's a romantic idea, isn't it? I might be dead, but as long as other people remember me, I'm living forever. But the American filmmaker Woody Allen once said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. There's something painfully and sharply true about that, isn't there? But friends, I want you to see, Jesus is the only person who's ever truly defeated death. He really physically died. He really physically rose. And if that's true, which it is, then true success is not found in this life. It's found in the life to come. You see, if Jesus guaranteed a world beyond this life, then suddenly this mortal life is filled with meaning. Because death is not the end. There is, though, one final reason. Why true success is found in humbly trusting Jesus. And here it is. It's because Jesus lived the most successful life of all. You see, even more than the woman of Proverbs 31, Jesus is the truest picture of success. So let me share with you, he is not quite 30 under 30, 30 under 33, close enough, his profile with you. Born, not to an elite family, to a young single mother. Jesus grew up not in Turak, but in the backwater town of Bethlehem. I'm sorry, but he never studied at Brighton Grammar or Scotch College. He studied at Nazareth, where he trained to be a chippy. At 30 years old, he changed careers and became an RE teacher. He was a little weird, though. He kind of claimed to be God incarnate and the saviour of the world. Even his own family thought he was low-key crazy. He only managed to squeeze out a career of three years as an RE teacher, and at 33 years old, he managed to get himself killed. That, friends, is the picture of history's most successful life. No. I love it. Uh, you look at Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, James and John, they're, 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 they're their mother, uh, the mother of Jesus' two disciples, comes to him and goes, uh, Jesus, can you make my son very successful? She's like the Asian auntie from hell, right? And she goes, make my son successful, right? And what does he say? He says, they've got to be willing to go to the cross and die. And she goes, huh? Right, like, come again, right? It's not exactly the picture. How could, how could Jesus be the ultimate paradigm of success? Well, let me show you. Jesus was so hardworking that he gave absolutely everything to his task. He even gave his own life. Jesus was so selfless that he gave his life for you and for me to save us from God's judgment, even though we don't deserve to be saved at all. And Jesus was so humble that he left the glories of heaven to take on our mortal flesh and to die the death that we deserve. You cannot find a more hardworking, a more selfless, or more humble person than he. You cannot find a more successful person than he. See, what do I need to have a truly successful life? There it is, hard work, selflessness, humility. And if you want to see what that looks like, 
Look at Jesus. Because his success achieved our salvation. Let me pray. God, we know uh, that Jesus casts a different picture of what success, of, of what real success looks like in our life. And we are so sorry for all the times, God, that we live for ourselves, that we're lazy or work hard only for ourselves but not for the sake of others. God, help us see, God, that we need to be our, like our Lord, the Lord who worked so hard that he gave of himself and gave of his own life out of a selflessness to love and seek and save the lost. Help each and every one of us here strive for true success. And for those of us here who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet trust him as our Lord and Savior, open our eyes so that we might see just how beautiful he is. And we pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.